Good morning. I want to share just a few things before Luke reads our text for the morning. Um, believe it or not, June marks 17 years since C and I moved to Columbia and became part of the West Seventh Church. Uh, I'm incredibly thankful for that uh, and humbled by that. Uh, that being said, we're going to get out of town for a little bit. Uh, we're going to take a trip next week, and so we won't be here next Sunday. Uh, but Taft Ayers is going to speak, and you'll be blessed by, uh, by that and for being here. Uh, along that line, this week I pulled out our old pictorial directory from 2005. And what a trip down memory line. Some of you have changed. Uh, all for the better, I'm sure. But here's what I noticed. On every page, there's about 12 pictures. Uh, some of them were an individual or maybe a couple or a family. But I looked through there of like the 12 from page after page, about three to four of those people are still with us. Many of them are with the Lord. Some of them have moved away. Um, and that was uh, kind of sobering just to go through and to see all that. And yet the church has remained solid. Uh, our elders have remained solid and faithful. We're, we're truly blessed. In fact, to that point, uh, let me just show of hands. How many of you were here before 2005? Can we see your hands? You're old like me, see? Uh, how many of you have come our way since 2005? It's a lot of us. I do that to kind of make a point. You've heard us talk for the last couple of weeks about our summer. We are family. Uh, one of the main goals of our summer program that we're doing on Wednesday nights and even on Sunday nights is to take advantage of some wonderful opportunities to get to know one another. It may be to introduce yourself for the first time. If you ever see somebody you don't know, just say, how long have you been at West 7th? Because it might have been a week, and it might be they were born here. Um, you, you never know about that. I remember one time going to a church visiting, and I was sitting next to somebody, and they didn't even speak to me. And I was thinking, this is not a friendly church. And so I thought, I'm going to show them. And I introduced myself, and I found out that they were also visiting. You know, so you just never know. And so just you take the initiative, you ask, and, and that's a good thing. But I really want to encourage you to be here on Wednesday nights. A lot of travel, a lot of ins and outs, but all kinds of opportunities. Sometimes here in this building, sometimes it'll be in the teen center, uh, sometimes in our family center, sometimes in a park, uh, sometimes it'll be a teaching, sometimes it'll be serving, sometimes it'll be uh, uh, an opportunity just to get to know one another, sometimes there'll be food involved, uh, but pay attention to the announcements, the email, it's going to be a great summer. Um, and I want you to be a part of that. Uh, and just to get to know one another better. Uh, we're doing something with our series this summer on Sunday morning. We're doing a very textual study, uh, just some basic truths we need to know. And we've asked our, some of our young men to uh, read the text each week. Uh, so Luke Thomas is going to read our text this morning from Colossians chapter 1. Luke. That's, that's better. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and though him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, yes, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thank you, Luke. There is a sense in which there are two kinds of sermons, doctrinal sermons and practical sermons. I think the human side of us is we prefer the practical sermons. Uh, we like to hear a, a good message on worry or that will help us in our marriage or help us to be more patient, and we need that. There are times where doctrinal sermons don't seem to be as relevant. Um, they're maybe not as interesting to, to listen to. And when things are going well, when we're prosperous, when uh, you know, everything seems to be okay, we're more interested in a good life application lesson than in a doctrinal lesson. Most of us probably would say we know more about how we should behave than what we should believe. But in times of trouble, when the pressure's on, it's going to be so critical to be firm in knowing what is true, in being sure of your faith. That's why Paul wrote to young Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 16, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, most of the letters that Paul would write to the early Christians were divided into two sections, almost halves, depending on the letter. The first half is this is what you need to know, and the second half is this is what you need to do. The first half was more doctrinal, more teaching, more truth-oriented. The second part was this is the difference that makes in your life. Because of what you believe, then this is how you behave, and this is how you react, this is how you respond Paul knew that the doctrine part is the root of our faith, and behavior then is the fruit of it. If we don't know what we believe, then how do we know why to do what we should do? So I want to urge, urge you as we study with us to kind of follow along, because you may be in a time of plenty. You may be in a time where things are going well, and it may seem like, I don't really need this right now. There's probably somebody on the row in front of you or beside you or maybe behind you that are in the throes of it, and they're wondering, what do I believe? Because life's not going well, and they're second-guessing, and they're wondering, God, are you there? What am I supposed to believe? What do I hang on to? What really matters? 
First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, Peter says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, it may be that you fit into the category that you need to get in the Word more. You need to remind yourself of what the Bible says and understand what the, really, what the Bible teaches. Or it may be that you've got a good grasp on what the Bible teaches, and you might need to give more attention to that second part of doing so, speaking in gentleness and respect. Because you can be so right in what you know and believe and yet be wrong in the way you respond to other people. And so even if you believe right, if you respond wrong, you're wrong. So we all can grow in this. The point is your beliefs will be challenged. And you need a solid understanding of what the Bible teaches, of what you believe. So I put this on the screen. It's also on your outline. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? That is the most important question you'll ever have to answer. What do you believe about Jesus? Last year we studied the names of Jesus, the attributes, and all the things that he's called in Scripture. What do you believe? How would you answer these basic questions? And how would the world answer? Is Jesus a mythical character or a historical figure? Is he a son of God? Or the only begotten Son of God? Is He a created being? Or is He the Creator Himself? Was Jesus born of human parents or was He born of a virgin? Is Jesus a great teacher of truth? Or is He the author of truth? Is He the one of many ways to God or the only way to God? Is Jesus subordinate to God? Or is He equal with God? Is Jesus one who died a martyr's death or a substitutionary death? Is he alive in people's memories or is he actually raised bodily from the grave? Is he one of many religious leaders or is he Lord of all? See, the only way we can know the truth about Jesus is to look at the Bible. Otherwise, he's a pretend Jesus that we just imagined. Maybe a combination of things we've heard all of our lives, and we've kind of patched those together. But according to the Bible, it's the second part of those questions, those statements that are true. And that's why Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. He wants everybody who would read this letter to be well-grounded in who Jesus is, to know him for sure. So the first half of this letter is all about the identity of Jesus. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. The verses are going to be on the screen, but as Luke just kind of read the whole text, I want you to be able to see it in your own Bible. And you're going to notice as we go through this, I'm going to encourage you to underline in your Bible or, or to draw a circle around a couple of words. And if you're the kind of person that you don't like to do that, I want to encourage you to buy another Bible that you can mark in because it will help you to ground yourself and to notice the things that are in there for you to take note of. What I want us to see as we go through this section, verse by verse, is that Jesus is Lord of all because of who he is. So the first section is from verses 15 through 17. 
And they teach that Jesus is Lord of creation. Now, you may know this already. Maybe you've heard this ever since you were a child. Or maybe one of those that maybe you weren't paying attention as a child. And and this truth escaped you. But the first blank to fill in there is Jesus is the physical revelation of the invisible God. And this comes straight from verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, notice this. He's the physical revelation of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh. This this passage says he's the image, the exact representation of God. So if you want to know what God is like, then the answer is like you look to Jesus. You know, we can look to nature. Chris mentioned that in the prayer. We woke up to this beautiful sunrise and the blue sky. And we praise God for that. And there's things we learn about God from looking at nature, His powerful ability to create something so beautiful. But nature itself doesn't reveal everything about God. It points to God for sure, but it's limited. Only in Jesus do we see God more perfectly. That's where you see God's compassion. That's where you see God's mercy. That's where you see God's patience. That's where you see God's grace. That's where you see God's love. Much more than just creation and nature, you see who he is. You may want to circle that word firstborn. Firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn means firstborn, of course, but it means more than that. In Scripture, it means of utmost importance. And that's good to know and remember because Reuben was the firstborn son of Jacob, And then Simeon and Levi, but those three were first in line, but they blew it. So it was Judah who became the most important, the one through whom Jesus would come. Solomon was not David's firstborn son, but he was the most important because he became the king. So that's the way the word is used in Scripture. Jesus is called firstborn of creation Because he's the most important figure in creation. Look at the screen. Just quickly look at these verses. You may want to write them down and go back and study more if you'd like. But John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Then verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Romans 9, 5 says, Christ, who is God over all. Philippians 2, 6 says, Jesus was in very nature... God. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Hebrews 1 3, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. See, if you've got in your mind that Jesus began in Bethlehem when he was born, you got that wrong. That was his incarnation. That's not when he began. He was with God in the beginning is what it says here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That's what Scripture teaches us. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what Jesus claimed about himself. Think about the many things he would say about himself. If if those were not true, he would have been a madman out of his mind. Before Abraham was, I am. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'll be crucified, then I'll come back from the grave in three days. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Then notice verse 16, it teaches that Jesus is the one by whom all things are created. 
For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Remember how the book of Genesis opens, the book of beginnings, where God said, let us make man in our image? You know, who's the hour he's talking about there? God the Father was talking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the creative word of God. By him, all things were created. And that's why when Jesus became flesh and walked among us, he frequently demonstrated his power over creation. He cursed the fig tree and it withered. Why? Because he created the fig tree. He had that power. He walked on the water And it sustained him. Why? Because he created the water. He had power over it. He stormed the sea. Peace be still. The weather obeyed him. He rode the donkey that had never been ridden before. Why? Because he was more powerful than that which he created. He raised the dead to life. Because as he explained, he was life. That's who he is. He's the author of life. Now, notice in verse 16, I want to encourage you to circle the words, for him. All things were created by him and for him. Here's a big shocker. This whole world that we live in, that sunset, the blue sky, the rain, the storm, that baby that's born, all the times where you think there's a God, there's a God, there must be a God. Folks, that was not for us or for us alone to see. It was created for him. Everything is to bring him glory. And when we come to understand that principle, it transforms our attitude. This world's not about me. The world doesn't revolve around me. I'm here not for me. I'm here. You're here to glorify God. He's in charge, not me. Remember that line in the song, This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget. That though the wrong seemed off so strong, God is the, remember, ruler yet. It's true. Who's God? Who's Jesus? Jesus is God in the flesh, the creator of all things. And then verse 17 says, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When we read that, that passage about Jesus holding all things together, I don't think you, you and I are to, to think about Jesus as literally being the miraculous glue that's just holding all the molecules together, restraining planets from just going out into oblivion, but rather he created all things with order, with laws, with rules. He's sustaining it all. And there are God principles at play. We reap what we sow. All things hold together. For example, Jesus is the glue, and you know this already, that holds families together. If we live by his precepts, when Jesus is honored in the family, when you love him and obey him as he says, then you avoid adultery and addictions and abuse and all the things that disintegrate a family. A marriage that is based on Jesus Christ will not succumb to the temptations of the world when Jesus is put first. Here's one. Jesus is the adhesive that holds businesses together. You ever think about that? 
Sometimes we keep Jesus in the church and Jesus in the family, not think about Jesus going to work with us. But Jesus is what holds businesses together, a whole world together. Remember Jim Collins' book, Good to Great? He's a business guru. He wrote this book because he examined these companies that were good and then at some point just kind of shot up to, to greatness. And he opens talking about level five leadership. Here's what he wrote. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who become celebrities, the good to great leaders are self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy. A paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. He said these are the leaders, the kind of people that holds the business together. We need more like Abraham Lincoln than General Patton, he says. Think about it. Doesn't that ring true from what we know of Scripture? When Jesus would tell us how to live life, how to deal with people, how to relate with one another, don't be like the Gentiles who like to lord it over you. But the greatest will be the servant. He turns it upside down. And when we see that at work, we appreciate that all the more. The more any leader is like Christ, the stronger, more harmonious the company. By him, all things hold together. It's not so much miraculous, I don't think, as much as just, he's just the way God made us and the way we respond, even at the workplace. Jesus is also the glue that holds the nation together. The Bible talks about this repeatedly, like righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Now, we have to be careful about how we interpret some of these passages that talk about on a national level. Because if, if the people and the nation are good, then God will miraculously protect them. And if the people are bad, then terrorists will come and take them down. If you fall into that kind of thinking, you're going to see it doesn't hold water. Because there are those children that get shot in schools. You think, wait a minute, that's not their doing. So how do we make sense of all of this? There's a natural order in the things that take place. A nation, like an individual, we reap what we sow. When a nation is godly, when a nation is strong, because the people have integrity, industry, they're working hard, they're upright, they're doing what they need to do, they go to work, they're doing the job, it's good. But when they're not doing those things, when the nation forsakes God, the moral foundations crumble, and we see the business goes bankrupt. There are God principles throughout Scripture that play out in every arena of life. Personal life, family life, church life, work, nations, because they're God principles, and we see those working. Reap what you sow, your sin will find you out. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, 12, and 12, When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. All we have to do is open our eyes and look, and we see how true that is. However, Jesus is the glue that holds all things together. That's why he is Lord over all. He's the one who created us. He knows us better than anyone. And when we follow him, it's to our best interest. He is the sustainer. Now, in verses 18 through 20, notice the second section here. Jesus is Lord over the church. Look at verse 18. He is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
And notice in these, these verses, Paul gives three reasons why Jesus has this right, why he is the head of the church. First, because he's God. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Second, he's the head of the church because he purchased it with his own blood. And we read about that often, not just in, the, in reading about the crucifixion, but it's referenced again and again. Like here in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus bought the church with his blood. We don't like to use that, that reference of purchase because you think about buying people and that has so many negative connotations, but yet he paid the price. He bought our freedom. And we also understand, you know, if I buy a piece of property, I own that property, so I get to make the, the, the calls about what to do with that property. We don't want other people to tell us what to do with our property. Why? Because I bought it. I own it. We understand that concept. That's what he's saying here. He bought the church with his blood, so he has the right to be the leader. Look what Paul said to the elders in Ephesus, Acts 20, verse 28. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Isn't that interesting? God's blood. So he's telling them to be shepherds, but he's also talking about Jesus is over the church. Why? It was purchased with God's blood. And the third reason, he has this right to be ruler in the church. He's risen from the dead, proving his superiority. Look at verse 18. For he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn. There's that word again. Firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus wasn't the first, though, to come back from the grave, was he? There are a number of times in the Old Testament we read about that. A number of times in the New Testament we read about it. Jesus brought people back from the grave. Why is that word used here? He's the firstborn. He's the utmost important. And think about this. He was the first to be brought back from the grave to never die again. And he makes the same promise for us. That's why it's different. That's why it's so important. Now, the fact that he came back from the grave tells us it's his. The fact that he purchased the church with his own blood means it's his. He owns it. He has the right to make the shot, call the shots, to have the supremacy. Folks, this is not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's not your church. I, I, sometimes when I read this, I think of a friend of mine in college when sometimes we're talking about where we're from and what we do or how we did, did things back home. We say, well, at my church, we did this, or my church, we did that. And I had a good friend, and it's, I still hear her voice saying, your church, the one you died for? No. We don't really mean by that. But what we read in Scripture, it's the church of Jesus Christ. We're accountable to him. You know, if this were my church, oh, my it would be so much easier for me. I get to call the shots. I get to make the rules. We do get to have staff retreats in Cancun. I mean, just think about it. It would be great. 
No, it wouldn't. It's already great. It doesn't need a human to call the shots. That's why you see so many scriptures in our teachings. It's not my opinion. That's why you hear us say the Bible says. We're not teaching tradition. Now, there are some times where the Bible doesn't specifically address a particular issue. And the Bible encourages us to study correctly, to handle the word of truth. But more often than not, when it comes to what the church needs to, to do, it is listed in Scripture and not, then we go to God in prayer and ask for, for, for godly wisdom to make the right choices. But the third section, notice Jesus is Lord of the Christian. So Paul hints at this now in chapter 1. He's really going to hammer this in the last half of the book. But we're going to change the theme of this series to Jesus is Lord over me. Because that's the point that he's making. But look here in chapter 1, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Notice those two words. Underline them. Circle them if you need to. Alienated and enemies. Our sin alienated us from God. If I were to have a pure glass of clean water, if I just opened it, you could hear the seal, and you knew it was clean, pure water, and poured it in a glass, and I got one drop of sewage and dropped that one drop of sewage into that clear glass of water, you would not want to drink it, and rightly so. It's polluted, it's contaminated, just one drop. That's the way sin works. Just one drop, one sin, that's the way it works. It's not that all sins are equal. No. But one is all it takes. Like, I don't want to drink it. It is polluted. It's contaminated. That's the way sin works. God is holy. God is holy. And just one sin in our lives, it contaminates us. It pollutes us. It alienates us. From God. And he becomes, get this, the enemies in our mind, not his. We're his child. He never gives up on us. But we think of God as the enemy. We don't want to hear anything about God. You know, think about a young child who is sick, and, and, and when the doctor or the nurse walks into the room, they just cry. Why? They remember the last time they got that painful shot, and here it comes again. When in reality, that nurse, that doctor, was helping them, healing them, giving them what they desperately needed. But sin has a way of doing that. It, it, it messes with our minds, and we see God then as the enemy who's out to get us. But in reality, he wants to heal us. He wants what's best for us. He wants to take care of our sins. He loved us so much that even when we're running away from him, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. Look at verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Do you see what he's saying there? The picture he's painting there? He cleansed your sin. When God looks at you now, what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus. Not your sin problem. Not your blemish. Not your ugly heart. Not what you did. Because you're in Christ, he sees Jesus' holiness. I've told this story before, but it was probably 15 years ago, and most of you weren't here, so I can tell it again. 
Now, our family, we lived in Tupelo, Mississippi. We had the sweetest couple that uh, they're, um, they cleaned the church building, had two young girls. And if you've ever had to clean the baptistry, it's like so much harder than like cleaning a pool. It is like so, talk to David, he knows. It's so fine one day, and the next day it looks like a Petri dish from a science experiment. I was like, what happened? Well, too much time had passed, whatever. It was time to clean the baptistry. So the dad was cleaning it, and it was that Petri dish kind of look. And they were going at it. And this little girl, you could just see her looking at all that. And she said, Daddy, when you're baptized, are your sins washed away? And, of course, he's just scrubbing away. going, yes, yes, not even thinking about what he was doing or what she was thinking about. And that little girl just said, well, whoever was baptized last time must have had a lot of sin. She's right, isn't she? But not necessarily because of the water. It's the condition of the human heart. We've all sinned. We have all sinned. And we need to remind ourselves of that. We need to confess that. We're all doomed to hell except that Jesus paid the way for us. Jesus reconciled us to God by the death on the cross. And those who accept Jesus, according to verse 2, are reconciled and free from accusation. Remember when we talked about that? That's part of one of Jesus' roles, how the, the Satan's the accuser. Then verse 23, he adds an if. Notice that. If, you might want to circle it, if you continue in your faith, establish and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. He's not saying you've got to be perfect. That's not what he's saying at all. Or nobody would, would qualify what he's saying there is your trust is in what Jesus did on the cross. Not that you always get it right or that you always are perfect. It's admitting, Lord, I need you every day. I can't forgive myself. My only hope is in Jesus. And then verse 23 continues. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard that has been pro proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become, and here's another word to note, underline, circle, servant. Why would Paul mention this? When we think of Paul, just from what we read about him in Scripture, Paul was no pushover. He was a strong man, strong character. We, we see him being the type A personality. He's the man in charge. He's the one who's going to get it done. In fact, if you don't do it his way, he'll go without you. I mean, we see that in Scripture. But notice here what he says. How does he identify himself? Not an apostle. Nope. Not a former Pharisee. Nope. Not an expert in the law. Nope. Even though he was all those things, I am a servant. When you come to Jesus... And this is the hardest part for some. When you come to Jesus, the humility that that requires, say, here's my intellectual pride. I've been to school. I had a good upbringing. Had so many things going for me. But I don't know enough. I can't do enough. Here's my rebellious spirit. Here's all the stuff in my life that brings you shame. You bring it all. You lay it on the altar. You give it to the Lord. And he takes it, and he washes it clean with his blood, and he gives you his righteousness. So when God sees you, he sees the holiness of Jesus. 
I read about a real-life example I want to share with you. A man was asked by the president of his company to go to the hotel and pick up someone that was going to join them for a very important meeting. But it was a woman. It was a woman that had a reputation of being quite flirtatious and dressed very provocatively. Well, he didn't want to go by himself to pick up this woman. And so he was in a quandary, what am I going to do? I mean, he's a deacon in the church, he's a family man, I mean, his reputation's at stake. But his boss told him to go pick up this woman. And she was needed in that meeting, so what was he going to do? He didn't have time to get somebody else. He was like, now, go get her now. He told his boss, I can't. I can't do it. Well, the president thought, what do you mean you can't do it? So he tried to explain, well, it's against my value system. I have a principle that other than my wife, I don't ride alone in a car with someone of the opposite sex. Let's get someone else. Let's send a cab. Let's do something else. The president said, you don't have a choice. I need you to go now. She's waiting on you. The man said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. The president said, well, I guess we're not number one with you anymore, are we? And there's a very long, awkward pause and the author writing the story explained that this man is a quiet, gentle soul, but he has strong convictions. And he said to his boss, to be honest, you've never been number one. You're not even number two. Jesus Christ is my number one, and my family is my number two. It'd be so encouraging to say that the boss said, I respect that. Let's send a cab. It didn't end that way. That young man eventually resigned from that company. But years later, God provided another job. He still has his integrity, his marriage, his reputation. The author said this, here's the important detail you need to understand. If you knew this man, you'd say, he could go pick up that woman and nobody would ever suspect him. But that's the point. It's like, who's your number one? Who's your Lord? Your little daily decisions at home, whether your children are seeing you or not, or at work, if your co-workers or your boss sees it or not, or, or wherever at church, those little decisions tell the whole world, is money your Lord? Is job your Lord? Is the company president your Lord? What is your Lord? Paul said, make sure, make sure you know Jesus Christ is Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.23 says, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. To me, one of the most amazing things about Jesus is he's Lord. He is Lord. Whether we acknowledge it or not, and he knows, he knows everything. He talks about, he knows the very hairs on your head. We see him interface with people, he would know the thoughts in their heart. He knows everything about you. And while you are running away from God or so absorbed in yourself or whatever your situation was, he died on the cross for you because he loves you. One last verse, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. I believe that confession is both a statement early on in your faith walk, and it's also a confession every day that you live by those decisions. We would like to end every message giving you an opportunity to make that confession. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Son of God who died on the cross for you, we're going to give you the opportunity to make that confession to this whole church family. Let him make you a new creation as your sins are washed away in baptism. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you're sealed. And he promises to never leave you. Or if we can pray for you in your relationship in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage. And keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon.